Welcome to Into Theology. I am joined with Ian Clary, and we're continuing to work through John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. We have finally entered into book four, the last of four books in the Institutes. The first was really on God the Father, you know, kind of Christ, redeem, Christ the Redeemer, and so on. And we're now in uh, basically the church. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the third book was kind of on Holy Spirit in a sense, too. But now we're in the fourth book, which is on the church, and we're just starting, and it's kind of a really fun overview section that says a lot, and I, I don't know if we'll do it justice because of how much is said here, but I hope that we uh, talk enough about it that it gives you a guideline to this uh, chapter and also maybe entices you to, to read it for yourself more carefully. So, Ian, you had a place to kind of yeah. start. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Like you say, he's, he really is setting the stage here now for the duration of uh, book four and so even though there's going to be so much information here that we really couldn't do justice to in just you know half an hour um it's all going to get kind of packed throughout the rest of it so i, I thought it would just be great to read that opening section from chapter one because he's even here laying a great a, a groundwork for the rest of, of this chapter and uh, he says some really interesting things in in here they are a little bit provocative at least to our kind of you know, uh, evangelical ears today, um, which we could talk a little bit about. So I'm going to start um, just reading here on page uh, 1011, and um, and then we can chat about it. So Calvin says, uh, explained in the previous book, uh, it is by the faith in the gospel that Christ becomes ours, and we are made partakers of the salvation and eternal blessedness brought by him. Since, however, in our ignorance and sloth, to which I add fickleness of disposition, just thinking of you there, Wyatt, uh, we need outward helps to beget and increase faith within us and advance it to its goal. God has also added these aids that he may provide for our weakness. And in order that the preaching of the gospel might flourish, he deposited this treasure in the church. He instituted pastors and teachers through whose lips he might teach his own. He furnished them with authority. Finally, he omitted nothing that might make for holy agreement with faith and for right order. First of all, he instituted sacraments, uh, which we who have experienced them feel to be highly useful aids to foster and strengthen faith. Shut up as we are in the prison house of our flesh, we have not yet attained angelic rank. God, therefore, in his wonderful providence, accommodating himself to our capacity, has prescribed a way for us, though still far off, to draw near to him. Accordingly, our plan of instruction now requires us to discuss the church, its government, orders, and power, then the sacraments, and lastly, the civil order. At the same time, we are to call back godly readers to those corruptions by which Satan in the, in the papacy has polluted everything God had appointed for our salvation. I shall start then with the church, into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry, as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith. For what God has joined together, it is not lawful to put asunder. So that for those whom he is father, the church may also be mother. And this was so not only under the law, but also under Christ's coming, as Paul testifies when he teaches that we are the children of the new and heavenly Jerusalem. So, I mean, it's just so much stuff in there. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. You know, we could go on with the, what does it mean that the church is our mother? Uh, we could talk a little bit about uh, how that there's a church in the Old Testament, um, we could talk about how um, the body, again, is the prison house of the flesh, and we're going to become like angels, uh, sacraments uh, as helps. I mean, man, he just really, he really gets into it pretty thickly here. So what do you want to do? 
Well, let's, okay. I think it's useful to, to talk about the outward helps, and, meaning what they do, and then to talk about how the sacraments connect to that in this, in this particular section. And we can say more too. But for, for me, it's, it's interesting. So he talks about on the first uh, page, so section one there, that we have this fickle disposition. So we need outward helps. But the out, outward helps have a particular goal or purpose. They're to beget and increase faith within us. And once we get into the the Lord's Supper past or uh, discussion, you'll see that like that's really what's going on. It's the nourishing of our faith in the supper. Like there's this connection between the outward sign and our inward kind of renewal, as as it were. Yep. And so these are aids that provide for our weakness. Uh, so preaching is part of it too, I suppose. But he's going to get into sacraments here, and it's really interesting to me. And I think he'll again get to this later. But he says on the next page, one thousand and twelve. It says, first of all, he instituted sacraments. So sacraments here is going to be Lord's Supper and Baptism, which we who have experienced them feel to be highly useful. I find that fascinating that he appeals well, to experience here. Well, that's my argument. We'll get there later. I think for Calvin, the Lord's Supper is the highlight of the experience of Christ. Yeah. And that experience, that, that uh, what's the right word for it? That kind of experiential faith, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah. Or experimental experimental. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a better, it, it is, is one of the reasons why you take the Lord's supper. And cause you remember Calvin wanted to do it weekly, but was yep. not allowed to. And I think he views the Lord's supper through the physical signs as the, as the experience, uh, like a, the Holy spirit gives us the experience of union of yep. Christ in it. And that experience then, uh, begets and deepens our faith. And by faith, I don't think he means, like, I think when we think of faith, we think like believe harder. I, I don't know exactly what he means, but I think it's, it's more than just believe harder. <laughs> I think it's like uh, a deepening realization of who God is, of his love for you, of his fatherly care for you and, and so on. And probably assurance and all those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole range of meaning to, to the nature of faith. So yeah, it is this it is belief and I'm sure it does increase our ability to believe more, but at, at the same time, there's that element where we're actually giving ourselves over more confidently uh, to God through Christ. It's that, that trust element to faith. Um, probably even uh, the idea of like a swearing of an allegiance and, and loyalty. And this is who, who we are uh, committing ourselves to and identifying ourselves with. And I think all of that probably plays into it. But it is, it's, it's true. I mean, I, I, you know, he's appealing to experience here and it's exactly my own. It's like, I could become very cold. Uh, I could become dry uh, in my own faith. And then when you go uh, and worship with God's people on the Lord's day, you hear the word, you receive the sacrament. Um, I come out feeling invigorated and I uh, hear the word preach and I taste the word in my mouth. And, uh, and I think that mm -hmm. that has a, a, a real strengthening effect in it. And now, that, tie, that ties in. Oh, go ahead. Well, you can keep going. I was just going to note that I, I think, too, as, as you're talking about preaching, I think Calvin isn't say it yet, but he's going to say that the sacraments are what they are when the word is attached to them. Yeah. So you said preaching is the thing, but I think he'll get there because on 1019, he says the church is built up solely by outward preaching and that the saints are held together by one bond only. Yeah. That with common accord through learning and advancement 
uh, they keep the church order established. But keep going. I was just kind of building on your point. Yeah, no, I mean, he's going to get into that, into the marks of the church and and, and those kinds of things. But um, right at the end of that paragraph of, of that uh, section that I read, that last paragraph, uh, he talks about how the church provides nourishment. And so mm-hmm. that's that's its motherly care. And uh, he gives that quote there where it's it's got footnote number three. Uh, where he says that for those uh, to whom he is father, the church may all uh, may also be mother. Um, and there he's referencing. That sounds super so, Catholic to me. Well, that's I do that in my classes uh, when I'm talking about the church, to my students. And I say, um, you know, is the church our is the church our mother? And students are kind of hesitant at first because that does. It sounds like, the you know, the institutional Catholic church is the mother and um to affirm anything like that seems like we're kind of swaying Roman Catholic there. Uh, and yet that's, this is the testimony of all the reformers. Luther says the same thing. Um, and, and it's tied into this, this nourishing role that the church has uh, because it does, it strengthens our faith. It feeds us in the sacrament, uh, teaching us through the word and, uh, and all those sorts well, of let's things. Let's expand on that nourish idea. Cause he's going to, I mean, he kind of does clarify if you just kind of, think for a second, but he says explicitly on page 1016, he says, for there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast. And lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we we become like the angels. Yeah. Meaning in the same way that a mother then cares for a child. So the church cares for us. Yeah. And so she's our mother. Then he'll, there's the common church or common mother. And then common father, which is God, the father. Yeah. Christ then is our brother or head. Yeah. It's a beautiful image. It's curious too, that he puts here at the end of that, uh, in that same paragraph, because uh, he's talking about the motherly care. And then he uses a quote uh, that would be kind of more referencing marital relations from Mark 10 uh, for what God has joined together is not lawful to put asunder. Okay. So, okay. Go on. Maybe say what you're going to say, but I have an idea. about. Well, it's just, it's just, a, I just noted it as a bit of a mixed metaphor, you know, that he throws out at it right in there because we have with our mothers, we have a, a, a biological bond with her. Right. Uh, whereas in the marital relation, it's a legal bond. Okay. Although yeah. the, though the legal bond does become not quite biological, but it's the one flesh union. Um, and so yet he's saying here though we have this motherly bond to the church at the same time, there seems to be some sort of like lawful recognition here that we ought not to separate from it. And he's going to, he's going to make that argument right uh, later on in this uh, chapter about not just willy nilly leaving the church, uh, because you're, you're going to bring God's wrath upon you as though that was like a breaking then of a covenantal bond that you seem to have with your mother. (laughs) So it's kind of. It's interesting. Well, he could be using Mark 10, 9 here to indicate that you shouldn't leave the church. And it's, it, while it is marriage, marriage by nature signifies Christ's love for the church. So it could be that the idea is that you're, you're, you're united to Christ in the church. If you leave it, it's bad. That yeah. might be what he's getting at. I mean, that's my assumption, but, um, but yeah, this is, is interesting. Uh, interesting the use of scripture citation to say the least. Yeah. Um, Okay, so how, he, he ends up defining the church uh, through the creed, but also, I yeah. think, generally. So he does it in a lot of different places. Um, I, I love his use of the creed. Uh, yeah. I actually found it, even though I've read this a few times uh, over, the, over the years, um, 
wrote an article uh, on some of this uh, for for your your website there, right? Um, I, I was still kind of like hit by certain things that he said that I had not really kind of thought through before when he's talking about the relationship between, you know, we believe, should we say the church or in the church? And so right. he's, no, he's noting kind of an interpolation of the word <laughs> in, in uh, later versions of the, of the creed. Um, and he's going to talk about the relationship to, you know, the communion of saints, which is the uh, visible church, whereas the, I believe the church is in relation to the invisible church. And I hadn't kind of never, you know, I, I recite the creed all the time, and I've never really thought of uh, that being the distinction there between the visible and the invisible church. And it's right there in the creed, uh, which I thought was really cool. Mm. Well, one of the useful parts, like, so for Calvin, I think following the language of Paul, Paul says the church, you know, comma, the body of Christ. For Calvin, the, the church is the uh, trans-temporal, trans-geographical body of Christ. He even says that those who are dead are part of it, right? Because you're, you're the, you know, they're up in like the, in the heavenly Zion and we're united to them. So common father, a common head. And he has a number of definitions. I mean, so let me just read two really quick. Thousand, uh, page 1014. He says, the church is called Catholic or universal Very cool. because there could not be two or three churches unless Christ be torn asunder, which mm. cannot happen. Well, be, there's one body of Christ. He's not talking about like a, a local church building. Yep. He's meaning that the total kind of picture that the Bible says. He goes on, but all the elect are so united in Christ that as they are dependent on one head, they also grow together into one body, being joined and knit together, as are the limbs of a body. They are made truly one since they live together in one faith, one hope, well, actually, sorry, one faith, hope, and love, and, and in the same spirit of God. For they have been called not only into the same inheritance of eternal life, but also to participate in one God and Christ. So again, it is the, the so-called mystical body, but it is the, the Catholic body. And it's also fat. So that is the sort of general definition. He's really drawn on Paul in Ephesians and Romans there. These are all Bible words, but he has another uh, one that's helpful that I think gives you, um, I guess, a definition that's maybe slightly more practical for how you can see what the sojourning body looks like in a region. So on page 1023, which is section nine, he says in a sentence, Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted the church of God exists. Meaning, uh, if you want to see where this sort of local or regional or sojourning representation of the body of Christ is, it's where the, there's, the, uh, there's true doctrine, the word of God is purely preached, and the sacraments are administered rightly. So word and sacraments is where the church is. Yeah, there's lots to be said here. I mean, I love that he uses that creedal language of Catholic and, you know, rightly recognizing it as, the, as this universal church, which is effectively the whole company of the elect. And, uh, and so there's not, like, as you say, there's not multiple bodies of the elect that constitute various universal or Catholic churches. There's one body of Christ, therefore there's one church. Uh, right before that, on the previous page, he's going to talk about how the visible church, the communion of saints, can be a mixed multitude, uh, but the universal church is not. It's, it is all, all who are truly in Christ. Right. And I like that language of truly, right? He says they are made truly one. So that's like a real bond, a real unity that we have. It's not merely metaphorical 
some sort of illustration, but it's a true unity. Why? Because they live together and then he grounds us in the theological virtues that are laid out by Paul, right? Faith, hope, and love. And we're bound together in the spirit. So, I mean, it's like such a profound bond um, that all Christians, as you, you know, church militant, church triumphant, and right across the globe, uh, we all share together. So, so church militant is us on earth, church triumphant, those with, with God. Okay. Um, yep. On page 1022, there's something we, we can't miss. And it is Kelvin's charitable judgment comment. Now, the reason I think I want to bring it up is because I, I think today we're very fast to use word like false teacher or heresy. false person, heresy or whatever yeah. for someone who disagrees with us. Now he'll talk about this later about uh, disputable matters. The, I don't know if he uses the word idea for in the original, but disputable matters are things that you're allowed to differ on, but here it's, it's hyper, hyper useful. It's very useful. I think to, to listen super to necessary, Kelvin, super necessary for our context and <laughs> any context to see what he says about this charitable judgment for how you should discern someone's in the faith. Yeah. It's the bottom of 1022 spilling into 1023. This is section eight. He says, um, there's a certain, uh, some, there is now quote, a, a certain charitable judgment whereby we recognize as members of the church, those who by confession of faith, by example of life and by partaking of the sacraments, profess the same God in Christ with us. And I think that's profoundly helpful. So love believes all things, trusts all things, hopes all things. And if someone says, uh, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation, they live a life that just isn't, they're not like obviously like, you know, running buck wild and they take the sacraments. I think our charitable judgment needs to be like, you're a believer. Yeah. Meaning, um, Unless you prove otherwise. Unless you, yeah. But, but the, my point to say is like, I think most of our, our judgments usually, oh, this person uh, has a different view of spiritual gifts. I'm going to assume they're, they're off. Yeah. Or this person has a different ecclesiology. I'm going to assume they're off. Or this person has a, a different view of like gender roles. Therefore, they must not be right. You know, yeah. where I would say, I, th I think he's writing the charitable judgment. He, he, by the way, he's not saying they're not wrong. <laughs> you know, like you can't write and wrong. He's just saying, there's a, there's a loving or charitable judgment that we should give to someone on the basis of these very public and obvious symbols. It was funny. I, uh, I uh, just recently was out for, for breakfast with a, uh, an older Christian man. And uh, I was a little bit sort of taken aback by him. Um, he was talking about how he and another friend of ours were sitting and just talking about uh, a whole list of people that we know um and they were kind of going through and having a discussion of who they thought were christians and who they thought weren't mm. and i was i didn't say anything at the time but i was pretty kind of appalled by it because i thought like who are we yet you have these objective things i mean because that list that you gave there are objective right you have this common confession you're taking the sacraments and whatnot um if those are there, then you have to have that charitable judgment. And there was just no charity in it at all. It was like, it was almost as if they were making themselves lords over these people's souls. And I just, I just thought that's, that's just not going to be helpful. It's prevalent. We live in a social media age where everything's like, it's one way or the highway. It's mm. either this or that. It's a sort of um, like ultra black and whiteism. And look on page 1026, he actually gives uh, a sort of, um, triage of, of of what's necessary and what's unnecessary to believe so he says on on page 1026 
Um, some are so necessary to know that they should be certain and unquestioned by all men as the proper principles of religion. Such are God is one. Christ is God mm-hmm. and the son of God. Our salvation rests in God's mercy and the like. It's actually uh, here Israel, God is one. Christ, who's, who's come, is, is the God of Israel, come to visit his people. And uh, so basically, so it's basically God, Christology, and then third, we're saved by mercy. And beyond that, he, he seems to be pretty open with the idea of uh, differences, uh, he calls a disputed doctrine, or doctrine disputed. It's really interesting to me, uh, and he quotes Philippians 3.15 in, in evidence of that, which I hadn't thought about this passage before. Maybe I had, but forgot. Philippians 3.15 says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, be of the same mind. Okay, good. But then he says, and if you be differently minded in anything, mm. God shall reveal this also to you. That's, that's really helpful. Well, it's like you and I could disagree, but it's like, I'm not going to say I'm done with you. I'll just, you just trust God. Yeah. Not yourself, not my private judgment, because I can give you a charitable judgment by saying, well, you know what? You confess the same Christ, worship, etc." God will reveal it to, to one of us who's ever wrong. You know, I mean, yeah. whatever that works. <laughs> um, the Holy Spirit is is has anointed us and will teach us all things. Like you don't have to worry. Yeah, that is so helpful. And 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 I always I'm always amazed by Calvin in these sections of of Book Four because you think, oh, this is you know the horrible Calvin, the Ayatollah of Geneva, and all these kinds of things, and so strict on purity. And you yeah, the Ayatollah. Yeah, have you ever heard people call him the Ayatollah of Geneva? You know what the Ayatollah is, right? Ayatollah Khomeini is the big one uh, in the Iranian Contra crisis. Uh, oh, so the Ayatollahs are the religious leaders of, oh, of Iran. Oh, okay, I do know. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I was not connecting dots. Yeah, so he's this like religious zealot okay. who's you know all about the yeah, you know, purity of the church. Like a religious leader in Iran, therefore he's a okay. So yeah, I, I got you now. Yeah, Tar- Ayatollah writes A Y A whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, and, and, and yet here he is, he's so like really balanced. He's arguing for charity, um, in our judgments and, uh, and, and grounds them, grounds that judgment and that charity in the things that are the most necessary, right? Is who is God? Who is Christ? What is the nature of the gospel? And if you have those things, then we should actually just be able to really bear with one another, uh, mm. which I find, I find so refreshing because it just doesn't, you just see it over and over and over again. It just doesn't happen. Hey, what about this sentence? Section 13, page 126. Sorry, 1026. In bearing with imperfections of life, we ought to be far more considerate. <laughs> what a sentence, right? Like, don't you just think about that for a second. Like, we don't live in a perfect world. We should be more considerate. <laughs> yeah, and we recognize, we should recognize at least our own imperfections, right? And so um, if we see them in ourselves and we want people to be, gracious and charitable with us, then why wouldn't we then do exactly the same for others who are in the same boat as us, you know? And what about this on page 127? There are people who are imbued with a false conviction of their own perfect sanctity. Oh, man. And then he goes on to talk about, there are those who sin more out of ill-advised zeal for righteousness than out of insane pride. Yeah. I mean, one of the things here this false conviction of our own perfect sanctity is, as I understand, if I, if I'm getting this right and really, I mean, I read this today, so who knows if I'm exactly right, but this is just kind of how it's hitting me is look, we can often think of ourselves as better than others. Philippians tells us not to, 
And we don't necessarily think of it in that kind of blunt way, but we are like, we're, we got it. And then we look at others and like, they're wrong. They're wrong. False teacher, like this discussion you had, false teacher, false teacher, whatever they're wrong, etc. Not believer, not believer. And yet Calvin's telling us, look, you need a charitable judgment on the basis of the signs that God gave us confession sacraments and basically living the living a, a life that's not wild and sin. And uh, I actually think it's a, it's probably a massive problem for us to be uncharitably judging others um, since we can't know their hearts. We can only know what they do. And those signs that what they do is just what God's given us. And we have to, I think love believes all things, hope, love believes all things, hopes all things, trust all things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love that line if, from that article that I wrote last year for TGC Canada. <laughs> I love the know. lines that you wrote in your article too. You're, you're well, a very stable genius. Did you know that? I'm very pithy. I'm very quotable. <laughs> uh, but no, that ill-advised ill zeal for righteousness has always uh, struck, struck me, you know, because we should have a zeal for righteousness, but there can actually be an ill-advised zeal for it where we become overzealous and uh, he says that that is rooted in, and I love this language of an insane pride. <laughs> it's like, you know, um, th that these people are motivated not for a genuine righteousness, which is we want to see everybody build it up in, the, in, in Christ, uh, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Those sort, that's a good zeal for righteousness. But here is this one that's rooted in this pride that we have, where we're the only ones who actually have it right. And everybody else who doesn't uh, is going to be cursed by us. And, uh, and then he says things like, uh, indeed, because they think no church exists where they are not, there is not, uh, they're not perfect purity and integrity of life. They depart out of hatred of wickedness from the lawful church while they fancy themselves turning aside from the faction of the wicked. So it's like this pride, this in, insane pride really quite literally deludes them. They think they're fleeing a wicked church when in all reality, the church there is a true church because of the marks that constitute it. And they've actually fled into wickedness while they think they're fleeing from it, which is so, it's so grounded and, in self-deception. Right. And also notes that there is a very legitimate complaint, Calvin says. Mm -hmm. so, so it might be the case they have, if I'm reading this right, let me just quickly read this again uh they immediately judge that no church exists okay there's a very legitimate complaint and we give all too much occasion yeah yeah so there is a real problem that they see it's legitimate yeah and yet that they they forsake the church because they they feel like it needs to be perfect right yeah it's got to be purified and I, then he's going to go on later and talk about how the body of christ is the bride the bride wears this dress and the dress has these imperfections in it as it's awaiting its its wedding the wedding and uh and christ is kind of actively smoothing out the wrinkles you know kind of getting rid of the flecks of of lint or dirt that might be on it and uh and so but but people and he says people these sorts of people who are driven by this insane pride don't see that they're saying they don't understand okay we positionally are righteous before christ because of the imputation of his righteousness but we're still being perfected and uh, and they're 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 demanding the absolute right. perfection now instead of actually waiting. It's for realized eschatology. It's an sense. over it's an over realized over -realized, eschatology. Yeah. Good, but good, um, but then he says things here too, like because those people, right, the those that have this insane pride, this ill advised zeal for righteousness, they then get other people 
who don't really know better. They, they do want that purity of church. They have these kind of motivations. They don't know what to do with it. They hear this loud guy over there who's like, this church has not got the gospel or whatever. And so then they bring those weak-minded people along with them. And so he says there, woe to us then who act with such dissolute and criminal license that weak consciences are wounded because of us. So on their, that's, that's on, one, uh, on 1027, right? In that same par- middle of that mm-hmm. paragraph, the ill-advised zeal for righteousness. He says, but on their part, those of whom we have spoken uh, sin in, that they do not know how to restrain their disfavor. Uh, for where the Lord requires kindness, they neglect it and give themselves over completely to immoderate severity. Um, and, and you see this, I mean, there's the temptation of it in my own heart. I've been this way, like grief when I was in the cage stage of Calvinism, I was awful. It was like, you know, if somebody preached universal atonement or something like that, I was just like apoplectic and ready to have everybody. We all reform people tend towards this. We all want to our little moderate severity. Yeah, exactly. Severity. it. And it's, and we all, we all want our little reformations, you know, here's my, here, my, here I stand moment. And, um, well, you know, he actually expands on this a little bit by talking about people who are too, too scrupulous, over scrupulous. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me on page 130, section 16 begins this way. Uh, but though this temptation sometimes springs up, even among good men from ill-advised zeal for righteousness, there it is again. we shall perceive that this over scrupulousness is born rather of pride and arrogance and false opinion of holiness yep. than of true holiness and true zeal for it. Therefore, those who are more those who more boldly than others incite defection from the church are like standard bearers, have for the most part no other reason than by their own contempt of all to show they are better than the others. Mm-hmm. Here, I think Calvin identifies something that we are familiar with. There's a sort of uh, ultra puritanical pure group, and they want to split from the bigger denomination or whatever because there's some impurity within it. And they're going to say, I'm going to do my own thing because we're going to be faithful and good. But it is an overzealous, uh, an, an ill-advised zeal for righteousness. And they split asunder the body of Christ for their own kind of view of holiness, which really, which really amounts to, I think Kelvin's right, they want to show that they're better, more holy, more perfect, mm-hmm. more pure, more whole than others. Yeah. But, but it's fascinating to me, like if you just think about log- like just big picture wise, if you're part of a church or a group of churches or whatever it is, and there is serious sin and problems within it, like if you're Christ-like, do you say, I cut myself off from you or do you invest in it in order to heal it? I guess to me, it's like, I think splitting is really like the last possible thing to do. Um, the, early, the early church all saw schism on this uh, to be the same level of heresy they actually saw to be a heretic was by definition of the word heresy to be a schismatic and uh and so and it's, it's no wonder then that he's going to quote so heavily from augustine on unity and cyprian right. and those sorts of things um because the early church saw this is so significant and yet we're so quick to split churches and i mean you know it would say with just within this immediate context of, of certain things we've you know, um, the rise of the, the of theonomy um, that's kind of happened as a result of the lockdowns. Um, as I've been kind of like diving back into some of the history of the, the Christian Reconstruction movement, they all were splitting from each other all the time. Like, it was like a friend just recently was saying to me, it's like, you'd have a church of 15 people 
And then, oh, those people over there are impure and they're not doing exactly the way. So then like 15 people will split and start a new church or, you know, 10 churches in a little dinky little denomination. And then that's not pure enough. And then they'll split. And there'll be like five churches here and five churches and they'll start a brand new denomination. It's just split, 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 you know? And it's like, no, nobody, you can never be satisfied in this life. Uh, there's never going to be the purity of the church and you have to bear with one another. He says in 1019, uh, he says, note the language of the, the, that he uses of these types of people. More detestable than this attitude is that of the apostates who have a passion for splitting churches in effect, driving the sheep from their fold and casting them into the jaws of wolves. We must hold to what we have quoted from Paul, that the church is built up solely by outward preaching and that the saints are held together by the, that one bond only, uh, that with common accord through learning and advancement, they keep the church order established by God. So he's like, the people that are just, he says they, they have a passion to split churches and they're effectively apostates that are doing this. And what are they? What are they doing? They're dragging these little sheep with them and throwing them to the wolves. Very serious. You know, I think sometimes uh, in our kind of Baptist background, we're, we're ready to maybe we'll criticize, say, Anglicans and so they're, they're so over the top on their ecclesiology; they'll never stand for anything. And yet, there's roughly 80 million Anglicans in the world. And they're overwhelmingly evangelical. Mm -hmm. Now, I know in our local experience, we sometimes see Episcopal for you in the U.S. and uh, Anglican churches in Canada that, that maybe seem off kilter. But they're the exception to the rule, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my question would be, like, if you're going to make that argument, look inward. So whatever, there's 50 million Baptists in the world. I don't know the exact number, something like that. And uh, how often do we split? How divided are we on Arminianism, Calvin? Like go through the list of things, right? And then you have to think for a minute, like, wait, are, are there actually nominal Baptists as well? <laughs> well of course there are. Yeah. And so I, I kind of wonder if maybe our, like our critiques of things like Anglicanism that sometimes pop up, which I, I don't personally, I actually like Anglicans. My brother's an Anglican priest, but. Um, yeah, you teach it, you kind of run an Anglican seminary in Canada. <laughs> um, I just think that it's a bit misguided because if you look at the Anglican communion worldwide, I was talking with a pastor yesterday in Idaho. He was an ACNA, so Anglican pastor. His church plant was from a Rwandan missionary activity in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's an evangelical Christian church in Idaho. Plant, uh, I guess, I'm not sure how it exactly worked, but it was from a missionary activity from Africa. Mm -hmm. And you But they're not divided over these things because they have one faith, one confession, one church. They have an identity that is... Uh, listed in obviously in scripture, but of course there's a, the, the practical visibility of it is important. Yeah. And for us, we're, we split, 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 split. And then we attack others who we're trying to make them less pure than us, but are they, I mean, maybe in a local, in your local geography, that could be true, but not internationally, not globally, not historically. Mm -hmm. It's only true yeah. in a very narrow way. That's where I think like the work of uh, people, I, I don't know if you know Lee Gatiss in uh, in don't know UK. him personally, but I know. Lee's a great guy and uh, the work that he's doing, you know, so you're at Ryle Seminary. So he runs Church Society that was part of what J.C. Ryle's ministry was doing in Liverpool. And uh, and Lee is doing really great work. He's, he's one of the Anglicans who has opted to stay in the Church of England and um the conservative evangelical churches in the C of E tend to be the ones that are flourishing there. 
And, uh, and he's done, I think, phenomenal work in, in wanting to try to bring the church back to its, its more historical roots. And, um, you know, back in, in uh, uh, the 60s, when Martin Lloyd-Jones gave that kind of famous call out, uh, all the evangelical Anglicans need to pull out, we need to kind of do our own thing over here. Uh, and John Stott very famously kind of like put the lid on it. Um, you know, that I think there's been a, a very negative effect from those Anglicans that had pulled out of the Church of England at that time. Um, because when you have a good, strong state church, even like a moderately strong state church, that's going to have a really positive effect on your society. And they've all, they'd all pulled out. And then there's all kinds of disputes and fights afterwards and stuff like that. Uh, and yet the people like Lee and, and of those ilk back then and today had stayed in, they're trying to do something that's more than just a fight for the church, but actually it has a, a real significant impact, uh, both in terms of the Church of England, its society and English culture, and then worldwide, you know, because who, who, are, the, who are those conservative Anglicans reading in Africa? They're reading guys like Lee, you know? I, I think so. And um, it, Calvin would be, I mean, I know he's not Anglican. Well, in fact, a lot of Calvinists are Anglican because of... Uh... It was a whole history, but um, it is interesting. He has a similar view of this sort of external unity. Like Calvin in the Swiss city states was ve like, very much thought of himself in union with these other city states, these other uh, city Cantons. churches. Yeah, and um, very much was was pushing and always wanting a broader unity with the with the German church up north, and interacted deeply with the English Reformation. So it's, it's a sense in which that he had, like he doesn't view the Reformation, at least as I read him, as this sort of like breakaway and, and a new thing. Mm -hmm. He sees it as a reform of the Catholic Church, which is present where word and sacrament are. And in fact, he'll, uh, in the next chapter, I believe, very, very shortly after this anyways, talk about how there are vestiges of the church in the Roman church. Sure. And I think at this time, I mean, he has to believe that because the entire reformed church that he's a part of were just a few years prior Roman <laughs> church yeah. people. Like, yeah. yeah, he was. Uh, he was so, very, he was very devout, following yeah. his, his mom around uh, to all the various Catholic churches and those sorts. But of But even things. the Genevan church was like before he got there. It's, yeah, St. Peter's. Yeah, yeah, it's not. I mean, you have to think in the 16th century, the the reformed church are the the body people who were visibly a part of the roman kind of movement but we're open to reform according to scripture because they're already there yeah they just need someone to give them the push it's not like this brand new thing it's they were there they just needed to see it clearly and be motivated yeah i mean think about, providence. so think about what he says on 1024 right so he, he so he's got that uh, uh discussion under that header there um marks and authority of the church so he's a two mark guy Right. So there's a there's the debate over, OK, is a church made marks. up for two or three marks? Is it a word sacrament church discipline or is it just word sacrament? He takes the two marks, yet it's all couched in language of church discipline in this whole air, this whole section. So whether he raises that third to a mark or not, obviously, Calvin believes in church discipline. Um, but then he says uh, here as well, kind of alongside what we were just talking about at the end of that opening paragraph. For the Lord esteems the community of church, his church so highly that he counts as a traitor and apostate from Christianity. Anyone who arrogantly leaves any Christian society, provided it cherishes the true ministry of the word and sacraments, 
He so esteems the authority of the church that when it is violated, he believes his own diminished. That and that, like, sit and think about that for a second. So, like, he doesn't just say, Oh, you leave the church, you become like a proper apostate, you abandon Christianity. Any Christian society that actually has word and sacrament. So, um, man, like, you know, I think about so many different churches that are duly constituted churches because they have these two marks. And then we're like, eh, well, you know, they have, uh, you know, uh, bad church, you know, programs for kids or, you know, the preacher, he's a little bit dry or whatever. And, and, and Calvin's even going to talk about that. Like we have to bear with people who have kind of you know, imperf- imperfect preaching styles and, and those kinds of things. He says, but if you leave a church that, that actually has word and sacrament in it for dumb reasons, you've actually deeply, deeply offended God. And it's, you're offending the body, which is the body of Christ. It's the truth. Cause it's, we are truly, as he says, the body of Christ. <laughs> well, in acts nine, when Jesus, the risen Jesus confronts Paul, he doesn't say, why did you persecute Christians? He says, why, no. did, why did you persecute me? Yeah. It doesn't say, why do you persecute my people? You, why are you persecuting me? So, and, so insofar, this is, this is actually a really important thing. Like, when the when we um so when the bible talks about like false people and all that kind of stuff uh it's usually people who are predestined to hell like in peter's language who are marked by uh pursuing women and weak people to exploit them right so it is it is uh the ravi zacharias of the world that's who they're talking about sorry if that's controversial to say but i just it's not controversial it's just sad you know sad yeah he's not talking about someone you disagree with and so but here's the real issue Jesus says, if you call your brother Raka, you're going to be afraid of hellfire. So if you call your brother a fool. Right. And uh, there's another uh, passage that is, is in the edge of my mind somewhere that is basically similar. But the idea, anyways, is if you call a brother or sister in Christ a fool, in the, I think it's a strong sense of fool. It's not just like you're being foolish. It's like a, something strong. Yeah. And if you are calling them a false teacher when they're not, i.e. slandering, and because they disagree with you on ordination, blah, blah, blah. I actually think you need to be more afraid about yourself than them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Calvin is actually trending, trending in that direction. But I think given the language that scripture uses for false teachers, namely those who are destined to hellfire and who are marked by exploiting people by their way of life, like money and sex and things like that. Because we often, we think about false teaching purely as teaching like, Oh, did you slightly get off the children's program? No, 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 no. Like no. this is a way of life, a, a total view of what it means to live the Christian life now. And it, it's someone who pursues and exploits women and things like that. So I just think if we are in a situation where we find ourselves accusing other brothers and sisters for disagreement over these things, then I would be much more worried about myself than those I'm, I'm, I'm accusing, to be yeah. honest, given oh, what scripture says. And give it what Calvin says. <laughs> give it what Calvin says, yeah. Yeah. And Calvin's obviously more important because we're Calvinists, right? Yeah, of course, absolutely. <laughs> um, but he, he, he goes on on, on uh, 1025 under number 12, um, where, you know, the subtitle there is um, Heating the Marks Guards Against Capricious Separation. And then it, it, he begins with the pure ministry of the word and pure mode of celebrating the sacraments are, as we say, sufficient pledge and guarantee that we may safely embrace as church any society in which both these marks exist. So if, if you show up to your local church and there's good preaching, pure administration of the sacraments, you have no grounds for leaving your church. 
Yeah, and he'll shortly define what he means by that. Basically, there's one God. Christ is fully God and fully... Well, yeah, Christ is God and Son of God. Salvation's by God's mercy. I think, too, what he's implying is, like, even if someone doesn't have all the technical jargon down, like, as long as they have the ideas that are true. Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, I think he's open up to Lutherans and Anglicans, you know, who might say things differently, but they're still part of this true communion. Or, like, think of it in our day. You know, um, so there's debates over, should we have uh, the Lord's Supper? You know, should we practice intinction where you take the bread and you dip it in as in some Anglican traditions or should they be separate and, and that kind of thing. And he, he says here that like, we shouldn't get caught up no. so much in that debate that it forces us to leave our church. Uh, he says at the very bottom again at 1025, what is more, some fault may creep in to the administration of either doctrine or sacraments. But this ought not to estrange us from communion with the church for not all the articles of true doctrine are of the same sort. Some are so necessary to know that they should be certain and unquestioned. This is where you had your quote before uh, by all men of the proper principles of religion. Right. So there's going to be some there's a threshold. And he's basically given us a creedal grounding. He's you know, those things that you read off before about one God and uh, the son of God and salvation. Those are creedal issues. So there you have it. So if you've got. If you've got the basics of the creedal teachings in a church, some of the other stuff might get screwed. So you might show up to church and you've got a solid, a good pastor who's grounded in those Orthodox teachings and might be a dispensationalist. Ooh, the worst of the worst. We're out. We're out. And he's <laughs> saying, no, actually, you're not out. You don't need to leave. If, if the core of the message of the, of the Orthodox faith is there, you don't, have, you don't need to go. Uh, you can have those differences and you should be able to express them in a charitable judgment and all those kinds of things. It's not to say that you just got to be cowed by the leaders or, or whatnot. Um, so, so just, just give like very practical examples. The scripture and creeds are, are straightforward on Christ will return and judge the living and the hmm. dead. Okay. But, but they're not, but scripture doesn't have, like if it was so clear, no one would disagree on mid trip, pre trip, post like what we're getting at is these are interesting and good issues to discuss, but they're not, issues that you break fellowship over and it's just these are way out of the kind of triage of what's possible to to break the definition of a true church yeah it's really what it is you use the word triage as as you were talking i was thinking of gavin ortland's new book on the hills to die on yeah Um, have you read that that, i haven't i haven't read it yet but i mean i've talked to gavin and and uh you know he's so good on this kind of stuff that if, if if you're if you're listening to this and you're in a situation where do i leave my church because of whatever and now calvin and, and this podcast is giving you pause for thought should i leave should i go and you don't know grab gavin ortland's book and uh, and he'll help you sort of think through what is the threshold that if you cross that threshold, you then have to leave? And I would argue that that threshold is going to be defined by those early ecumenical creeds, the apostles, the Nicene, uh, Chalcedon, uh, Athanasian Creed. Those are going to be the ones that are going to set those parameters for you. So am I in a church that's that's uh, adhering to those and the sacraments are there? Then you, you're probably going to want to lean pretty hard into I need to stay and I need to mm-hmm. I need to be a force of unity in my church. No, that's incredibly useful. I think we well, we should end here. We did a, we've done a lot. We could do more. Dude, I'm man, sure we could go way, way, uh, way uh, more. Ch- chapter two is on true and false churches, so we can give a little bit more yeah. insight into that. But I mean, today we really it was chapter one we talked about, but really it was what is the the Holy Catholic Church. Yeah. In fact, is that the title of no? Okay, but that I mean, basically, yeah, chapter one. So the true church.
we've tried to define that today a little bit through Kelvin's language. I think it's, it's quite helpful. And uh, I think that's a lot of practical stuff here, despite the fact that this isn't a big theological work. So I'm looking forward to exploring a little bit more of Kelvin on the church and the sacraments. So see you next time. See you.